you grab a Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 13? A dragon last week, a beast this week. Revelation chapter 13. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1035. June 6, 1944, might ring a bell for some of you, June 6, 1944, we call it D-Day, Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and dealt one of the greatest blows to Hitler, it began the downfall of Nazi Germany, but Hitler did not surrender, he was enraged. And he mounted a final attack at the Battle of the Bulge, but without success. Last Sunday, we read of a much greater victory over a much greater foe. In chapter 12, a cosmic war raged in heaven. But through his cross and then his enthronement, Jesus dealt the decisive blow to Satan. The great red dragon was thrown down to the earth. Final defeat was guaranteed. But Satan doesn't surrender. He is enraged. He knows his time is short, and so he mounts a final attack and wages war against the church. Chapter 13 picks up that story, and it provides you with intelligence to endure Satan's war. It reveals the dragon's personnel, the beast, the false prophet, and their followers. It reveals how they've done battle in the past. We'll see this when, we pull from, when he pulls from Daniel, Daniel's prophecy. It also reveals the dragon's present tactics. But chapter 13 also reminds us of a certain hope we have in the Lamb. The dragon is limited. Jesus has taken the throne. So if you want to endure like a good soldier in this war, then you need to listen to chapter 13. So let's pick it up at the end of chapter 12, verse 17. Chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? 
and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and he was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. We'll stop there and pick up verse 11 next week. So, four observations about the beast and one exhortation about endurance. First, let's get acquainted with the beast's character. The beast's character. Notice that he rises from the sea. That's from Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel sees four beasts rising from the great sea. And for many, the sea was a dark and threatening place. Dragons came from the sea in the Old Testament. Isaiah 27, verse 1. Uh, Job, chapter 41. Right? Leviathan dwelled in the sea. Ezekiel 32 Verse 2 also likens Pharaoh to a dragon who, who's, who's stirring up trouble in the sea. And now this dragon is stirring up trouble in uh, the sea. Now chapter 17, verse 15 of Revelation, likens the rebellious nations to many waters. So we could be looking at a sea of people. Either way, the dragon brings forth a beast from his, his dark abode, the place of his, his influence. And this beast also has seven heads and ten horns. Sound familiar? In chapter 12, verse 3, the dragon has seven heads and ten horns. And so what we're seeing here is that the dragon creates a beast in his own image. Now, if you would flip with me to chapter 17 of Revelation. Chapter 17, verse 9 and 12, explain what these seven heads and ten horns symbolize. This is, uh, you know, the assumption is that Revelation is going to be read in one sitting. And so you get pieces here and there uh, of what all of this means. So chapter 17, verse 9, John says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads... Are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. I think of kingdoms or powers. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, and is an, it is an eighth 
but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Verse 12, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. So chapter 17, verses 9 and 12, explain what these seven heads and ten horns symbolize. They are earthly kings who hate Christ, and they rise and fall over time. In other words, the dragon fights the church through the earthly enemies of Christ. Think about it for a minute. In verse uh, 2, chapter 13, verse 2, we see that the that, that the dragon has a throne, and he gives that throne to the beast. The last time we learned about Satan's throne was in chapter 2, verse 13, when Jesus is addressing uh, the church, and we see what happens there is that earthly enemies kill one of the Christians named Antipas for preaching the gospel. So you can't see Satan. You can't see the dragon but you can see the activity of the beast. You can see what he does to the saints on earth. The beast makes Satan's rule visible on earth. If we ask, how do you see Jesus? You can't see Jesus right now. How do you see Jesus' kingdom? Well, you see it in the church, in his people, right? Well, Revelation is saying, how do you see the, the, the Satan's kingdom? You see it in the way the beast attacks Jesus' people on earth. Also, don't pass over the fact that the beast is a beast. Right? He's, he's scary. Uh, John borrows so much from Daniel's prophecy here, but, but one key moment is Daniel 4, where, where Nebuchadnezzar, right, he walks out on the palace of, of his roof, uh, the roof of his palace, and, and, he, and he, says, uh, he, he says that he looks over the kingdom of Babylon, and he says, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? And what does the Lord do to him? Turns him into a beast. You see, pride turns image bearers into beasts. We were made to rule the beast, not the beast to rule us. This beast symbolizes arrogant kings and kingdoms. He has blasphemous names on his head, verse 1. He robs God of worship, verse 4. Verse 5 says he is haughty. In other words, he, he takes after the dragon... Right? The dragon who, who sought to exalt himself above God. We saw that in chapter 12, verse 4. And so the beast represents arrogant rebel kings and kingdoms that display Satan's rule on earth. The beast represents arrogant rebel kings and kingdoms that display Satan's rule on earth. Second, we need to consider the beast's history. The beast's history. Already we've seen that he has seven heads and ten horns. But look also at verse 2. The beast that I saw was like a leopard, 
and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. So we've got ten horns, we've got leopard, we've got a bear, we've got a lion. These are all beasts from Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 8. Daniel 7, verses 2 to 8. God gives Daniel a dream. He sees four great beasts coming up from the sea. The first is like a lion. The second is like this ferocious bear with ribs hanging out of his mouth. And the third is like a leopard, and this leopard has four heads. Uh, The fourth beast is just absolutely terrible. He's got iron teeth, and he's got ten horns. But these beasts symbolize successive kingdoms. So the lion symbolized Babylon. The bear was the Medo-Persian Empire. The leopard was Greece. The dreadful beast was, was Rome. And the four beasts symbolize multiple evil kingdoms that would rise and fall over time, and each of them oppressed God's people, and those kingdoms got progressively worse until the last kingdom devours the earth and blasting the Most High and wears out the saints. That's all in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel 7. Well, what does John see? He sees a beast that combines all of Daniel's beasts. It has seven heads, which is the total number of all of Daniel's beasts put together. The four beasts symbolize multiple evil kingdoms that would rise and fall over time. And, and what we're seeing here is they're all combined. Their traits of those kingdoms are all combined into one beast. Uh, it resembles all of the evil kingdoms in Daniel's prophecy. Daniel's prophecy envisioned earthly kings who would conquer and oppress, but they all anticipated this greater beast. So this beast stands for numerous arrogant kingdoms across time who boast of great power, who conquer the earth, and who smother God's people. So in that sense, he is Antichrist. Now, some will limit the beast to a historical ruler in Rome, uh, in, in, the, in first century Rome, and several parallels do exist. We'll pick some of those up next week. Others have limited the beast to a specific leader in history. And some of those we'll talk about next week. Others will limit the beast to an Antichrist figure during the last three and a half years of history as we know it. But what if these views get aspects of the beast right while also being too narrow in the final identity? Again, we've, we read a minute ago in Revelation 17 uh, how, that John associates the beast's seven heads and ten horns with multiple kings and kingdoms that rise and fall throughout the present age. We could say that the one beast has many manifestations. Revelation 17 also seems to indicate that the beast has a final manifestation that is the worst. 
Chapter 11, verse 7 also told us that he conquers the church and kills them. So I find this, uh, the one beast with many manifestations, to be consistent with what John says elsewhere, like in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Antichrist is coming, but the spirit of Antichrist is in the world already. Uh, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 7, there is a man of lawlessness, but the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, Paul says. So the beast represents arrogant kingdoms over time that persecute the church. Third, let's look at the beast's war. The beast's war. What are some of his tactics? One is that he blasphemes God and his people. He blasphemes God and God's people. Verse 1, the beast has blasphemous names on its heads. In verse 5, it speaks blasphemous words. Now, you've got to remember, John wrote this during uh, the, uh, Rome, when, when Roman rulers would often take to themselves divine titles, like son of God. Augustus took to himself the, the title Savior of the World. Uh, Caesar is Lord. Right? At other times, maybe they didn't take on those titles, but, but other leaders, they, they spoke as if they alone controlled the seas and they alone controlled the earth's bounty. And they brought the world peace, right? The Pax Romana was always about this. If you're in our borders, you will have peace and prosperity and so rulers would ascribe to themselves titles or, or qualities reserved for God alone. In verse 6, the beast also blasphemed God's dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Now, it could be angels, I suppose, but more likely it's God's people. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 1, uh, the temple, God's dwelling, included God's people. So to blaspheme them is to, is to slander them. Okay? Satan did this uh, using a Jewish synagogue in chapter 2, verse 9. It's the same word here, blaspheme. Uh, there it's translated slander in the ESV. But in chapter 2, verse 9, they, it, it, it's, the, it's the beast kingdom, again, slandering Christians so that the, the Roman government puts them in prison and eventually kills them. Another tactic is that he counterfeits the lamb counterfeits the lamb. Look at verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, or better, uh, like it was slain unto death, but its mortal wound was, was healed, and the whole earth marveled. Now, this one is challenging to, to understand, uh, but remember chapter 17, verse 9, the heads represented earthly kings, and so some will relate this to, to the death of a Roman ruler whose, whose empire just seems to, seems to just keep coming back. One, one guy gets knocked off, the empire comes back, persecutes Christians some more. And most popular is a legend about Nero. And it's possible that John is borrowing from that legend to, to uphold Nero as the epitome uh, of what this beast is about. Nero slandered and murdered Christians. That's what this beast is about. He's like Nero. But John's primary goal is more so theological, and it is to expose the beast as a pretender. You see, in chapter 5, verse 6, the same word is used of the lamb. 
The lamb was slain and now lives to rule on God's throne in heaven. And here the beast is slain. But he comes back and he rules on Satan's throne on earth. So this fits into a a larger uh, parody, a larger pattern that, that, that happens in Revelation The lamb has horns, and the beast has his horns. The lamb has diadems, and the beast has his diadem. And the lamb has his worshipers, and the beast has his worshipers. And the lamb has his throne, and the beast has his throne. You'll see this come up again and again as we move forward in Revelation. So the beast is pretending to look like a savior. Jesus said, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So he tricks people into thinking that his rule is forever, and his kingdom is the better one, and the most long-lasting, but in truth, this belongs to Jesus alone. Another tactic is that the beast entices the world into false worship. The beast entices the world into false worship. Verse 3, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon. For he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Goodness, how many times do we hear that said of the Lord in the Old Testament? Like Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And yet here, people are saying it of the beast. He amazes them with his ability to keep rising back to power. He's coming back again. Who is like you? They also say, who can fight against the beast? So he has this great, not just political power, he has great military power. He seems invincible. When John was writing this, carved in stone all over, all over the cities are pictures of Roman rulers holding up the trophies of their military conquest. And I, when I say trophies, I mean the heads of, of men, women in shackles. So always before the people was this messaging that Rome is number one. We are the greatest nation. You mess with us, you will pay. You stick with us, we'll give you peace and prosperity. Heard any of that messaging before? In verse 7, the whole world is amazed by its ability to to conquer. It leads them to believe that, that he's the ultimate king in charge. So they worship him. They do what he says. Not everybody, though. Verse 8 says, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Some refuse to worship the beast, not because they're so much better, but because God graciously chose them. Before the foundation of the world, God wrote their names in the book of life, and they belong to the Lamb. And the Lamb gave His life for them and made them His people. Now they follow the Lamb, and they worship the Lamb, but... But those who don't belong to the Lamb, they worship the beast. The beast also destroys the saints. 
tries to destroy the saints. He hates those who belong to the Lamb. Verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. In Revelation, that includes various forms of, of persecution, slander, threats, imprisonment, squashing their testimony. Maybe it's economic oppression. You, know, you, you follow Jesus, I don't hire you. You follow the Jesus, we confiscate your property. You follow Jesus, you can't buy and trade and sell with us anymore. They use, the beast uses fear and death. The beast war is ruthless against the saints. At the same time, we're not left without hope. Let's look next at the beast's limitations and his future. The beast's limitations and his future. Four times we hear what's called a divine passive. These are all throughout Revelation uh, Verse 5, the beast was given, it was allowed. Verse 7, it was allowed, authority was given. The beast doesn't move an inch unless God gives him permission. That's John's way of saying that. Also, we shouldn't forget the angel of chapter 10, verse 2. Remember the, the mighty angel we saw? He has one foot that's planted on the sea, and the other foot is planted on the earth. And for him to be standing on these shows that he has dominion over them. And so Jesus' angel has, has dominion over the earth and seas. So you read that scene before you get to this scene. In other words, Satan will do what he does. He will, he will stir up trouble in the sea, but we know that Jesus already has dominion over the sea. That's the picture. It's not outside of his control. Also, look again at the end of verse 2. The end of verse 2. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. The dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. What dragon? The one Jesus just kicked out of heaven in chapter 12. That dragon that Jesus already conquered at the cross. Do you get it? It's like, sure, he's got authority, he's got a throne, but it's nothing compared to Jesus. Next to the events of chapter 12, the beast's power is that of an inevitable loser. Right? You read chapter 12, then you read this one, and you go, oh, wow, he's great, but oh, his throne is cute. Look at this little throne. It's gonna, Jesus will boom, his throne. He is an inevitable loser. The inevitable loser gives the beast his throne. Ooh. God also limits his time. God also limits his time. Verse 5, he is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now, we've seen this time frame before. Chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Chapter 12, verse 6. It's called 1,260 days there. That's 42 times 30-day months. In chapter 12, verse 14, it's called time, times, and half a time. 
three and a half years. It comes from Daniel 7, 25. I'll read it to you, Daniel 7, 25, uh, speaking of the fourth beast, which, is, which was the worst. Um, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. You see, in, in, in Hebrew, you expect time, in the singular, times doubled, and you're expecting the times, the next set of times to be tripled. But that's not what happens. Instead of tripling the last set, it's cut in half. It's cut short. And so it's sending a message that the Lord will cut short the days of the beast. I've told you before that I I take these three and a half years to symbolize our present age. It begins with Jesus' ascension and Satan ousted from heaven. I got that from chapter 12, verse 6. It ends with Jesus' return and Satan vanquished forever. Now, some will take that number more literally and push it to the end of history. But I think the main point we can agree on is this. The work of the beast won't continue forever. Right? God will cut his plans short for the sake of his people. The beast has no power that is forever. The beast has no kingdom that is forever. The beast has no throne that is forever. That belongs to Jesus alone. God will sit in judgment. The beast's dominion will be consumed and destroyed. And then the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the Lamb. Jesus' kingdom alone is the everlasting kingdom. The beast is limited. And Revelation 19, verse 20 tells us that his future is the lake of fire. At the same time, we must endure this war for a little while. We've made four observations about the beast. Now let's consider the exhortation to endure. Look at verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Revelation does not shy from telling us how bad it will get when you follow Jesus. When rulers and kingdoms and peoples hate Jesus, it will mean persecution for his people. Captivity and sword are mentioned here. And this requires, it says, both endurance and faith. Now, if you turn one more page over to chapter, 12, uh, chapter 14, verse 12, uh, you see the same exhortation but with more details. Chapter 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So endurance has to do with this this long-standing obedience. The pressure's being put on you, and you're still keeping the commandments of God. You don't care what the government says or that ruler says. I am obeying Jesus. At the same time, it's not this white-knuckling, I can do this myself kind of 
endurance. It's an obedience, an endurance that comes by faith in Jesus. Jesus remains the object of our trust and the giver of our strength in the midst of it. Endurance and faith. Notice, too, how the, Christians, how the Christian fights, though. When faced with a sword, he doesn't take the sword and slay the enemy. No, it says, with the sword he must be slain. Endurance doesn't include violent assaults against the beast. To do so is to be giving into the beast's ways. Now, we could turn to other places in Scripture and discuss how some situations of reckless evil call for self-defense in service of a neighbor. We could even sort out what it means to participate in just war against tyranny, trusting God's means of the state to protect the innocent. But when we are talking about the special mission of the church, when we are talking about suffering for the gospel's sake, The church is not a people, not an institution that takes up arms against its enemies. We may not retaliate with violence when we suffer for the gospel. When evildoers persecute us for belonging to Jesus, we may not revile or threaten in return. It's words from 1 Peter 2. We are called to endure the persecution for Jesus' sake. We are called to follow in the footsteps of the Lamb. He conquered by laying down His life on behalf of others. According to chapter 12, verse 11, that's how we conquer as well. We conquer by our testimony to Jesus and not loving our lives even unto death. Okay, that's four observations about the beast. One exhortation about endurance. How should this impact us? How will... This prophecy make you more faithful to Jesus. Let's start where we ended just now. I think this call to endurance helps sever the idol of safety for greater faithfulness. It helps sever the idol of safety for greater faithfulness to Jesus. Safety isn't a bad thing, especially when we set it in the context of neighbor love or preserving fellow image bearers. But sometimes we forget the Christian life isn't meant to be safe. Taking up your cross is not a safe thing to do. It means you're going to die. In an article published by the uh, International Mission Board, Pastor Andy Johnson writes of the following experience he had He says, the woman on the phone was gripped by that kind of fear that sounds like anger. I was considering sending her adult son overseas for the summer. The place he hoped to go wasn't a war zone exactly, but it it was uncomfortably close to a war zone, and Mama wasn't happy. I told her we were trying to be careful, wise, we're seeking counsel, and how the risks seemed reasonable given the gospel opportunities. None of that helped. Finally, in frustration, she said, okay, if you can personally guarantee he'll be absolutely safe, I'll be okay with him going. I replied something like, ma'am, nobody can do that. I can't even guarantee he wasn't run over by a bus five minutes ago. 
He says, this was not the high mark for my pastoral sensitivity. (laughs) But I stand by my point. Perfect safety is an illusion everywhere. A few years ago, we had a missionary speak at Redeemer. They serve in a war zone in the Horn of Africa. And he said people will often ask him, how can you take your family to such an unsafe place? And then he likes to ask them, have you ever known a deadbolt to stop cancer? Is there a security system elaborate enough to prevent heart attacks? Does the comfort of family guarantee your children won't be abused? And his questions were getting at the same truth that this pastor pointed out, that perfect safety is an illusion. But that's regularly the first question we're asked, isn't it? That's the first question we're taught to ask in our culture. Will it be safe? Is the neighborhood safe? How can we make things safer? As another missionary to Equatorial Guinea put it, our idol of safety often infests our decision to serve. Following Jesus is not safe. Yeah, I mean, we're safe in the sense that God keeps His own, but we're not safe in the sense that we won't suffer. And I think we're seeing that here in chapter 13. Captivity, it says, and sword for following Jesus. We learned last week that we are in a wilderness. Chapter 12, we are, the, we are the church in the wilderness. Chapter 13 saying there's also beasts out there in the wilderness. Are you prepared for them? I think we need to be. Let this call to endurance prepare you for suffering. As Richard Wernbrand would say to, to his, when he was discipling others, it's too late to learn these things once suffering comes. His exact quote is, it's too late to learn this once the communists put you in prison. The days we need to to be preparing now. John's vision will also help us discern the beast by his character, tactics, and goals. His vision will help us discern the beast by his character, tactics, and goals. You know, brothers and sisters who suffer under Sharia law, they know what the beast is like in Afghanistan and Iran and Sudan and Somalia. Brothers and sisters suffering under communist regimes know the face of the beast, like those in China and Laos and North Korea. But are we prepared Are we prepared to discern the beast's work? I'm not so sure. In our culture, there can be this tendency to think, never us, never here, we're not like them over there. And those assumptions may blind us to discerning the beast. A passage like this gives us some good questions to ask, doesn't it? Here are a few I came up with from this this passage. A few questions. Um, One, do the leaders have ten horns? I'm just kidding. Uh, 
do the leaders pretend to have qualities or an authority that belongs to God alone? They have a they pretend to have qualities or pretend to have an authority that belongs to God alone? Do they portray themselves as a Savior or lead people to depend on them as Savior? Do they act like their government is the solution to all society's ills and that their policies alone are the path forward to world peace. Do they use political and or military power to coerce conformity to their idolatry? Do they slander or oppose Christians when they accurately critique the abuse of power by those in office? Do they work to silence confessing Christians or threaten them when they uphold the Bible's moral vision? Have you seen these things here? To some degree, I think we have to say yes. Now, we're not experiencing imprisonment and bloodshed that Christians experience on a regular basis elsewhere. But consider how leaders often back their campaigns using religious language. Consider how some will use political power to force others to conform, say, for example, to the sexual revolution. Or else you suffer charges and lawsuits. Consider how leaders play God with image bearers whether that's legalizing abortion or passing laws about pronouns. You see, the spirit of Antichrist is preparing a people to persecute the church. The question is, are you alert to his schemes? Can you pick them out? Maybe Revelation 13 will start helping us to to be more discerning. We'll pick it up next week as well with the second beast who, that adds a religious component to this. At the same time, I think chapter 13 emboldens us for the beast's attacks. We don't have to discern the beast and then freak out. We will em- the, chapter 13 emboldens us for the beast's attacks. The beast controls people with politics, power, money, people of influence people who determine whether you go home to family or stay in jail. The beast has a way of pressuring you to accept the claims of his empire. Uh, Craig Coaster puts it this way. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. If the vast majority of people think the current regime is impressive, then others will find it hard to disagree. I mean, we feel that, don't we? We feel that when you go into the store and everybody's doing this. All the businesses, all the corporations. 
And you feel this, this pressure that's just constantly putting on you. Just, just agree with us. And so with that kind of pressure, our confidence can start to fade. Perhaps we're tempted to, to flatter, start flattering those who are in power. Maybe we're tempted to start to soften the teachings of Christianity, you know, kind of grind off the sharp edges. Or maybe that's when the doubts start creeping in. I mean, after all, when something seems invincible, it becomes harder over time to resist it. And you start wondering, will this evil prevail? Has, has God lost control? Has He forgotten us? Are these powers greater than us? Is this suffering going to last forever? And chapter 13 says, no, 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 no. Satan and the beast are under God's control. Their power is limited. Their defeat is inevitable. And the days of evil will end. And so when the pressure continues to mount, we can remember that the power of the beast is nothing compared to the power of Christ. The throne of the beast is nothing compared to the throne of Christ in heaven. The beast is temporary. Jesus is forever. The beast gets wounded and returns, but you know what? His wounds never save. Jesus' wounds are the ones that heal. Jesus' wounds are the ones that liberate from sin and death. Jesus' wounds have already conquered the dragon and the beast, and therein lies our hope. And Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's coming again to take them by the seat of their pants and throw them into the lake of fire. He will prevail, and there's our hope. And therefore, stay faithful to Jesus. Don't fear the beast. Fear Jesus. Be like the apostles in Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than man. The beast may kill us just like the evil rulers killed Jesus, but in and through that death, Jesus conquered the dragon, who is the power behind the beast. We too will conquer by following in Jesus' steps. Jesus will raise us from the dead and end the beast forever. So let's remember this victory of Jesus and let's remember His coming again as we turn now to take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus' victory over the beast. We thank You that anything we suffer from the beast in this age is under His control, it is limited, and it will have an end. We thank You that You are the kind of God who preserves us too. You have already written our names in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain for us. Thank you for saving us and making us belong to Him. Would you please give us strength to endure and faith in His name as we move forward as a church and as individuals. I ask that you would protect the children of the woman in this room. That you would keep them firm in the faith. That you would help them endure each day. Put on them Christ and His full armor that they may be able to overcome the evil one and withstand this evil day. And help them to the end. Amen.